I want to thank Pastor Eric for leading us in uh, communion. And uh, I don't know if you know this about Pastor Eric, but he actually does a few impersonations pretty well. And I am wondering if the family that you met was maybe from Wisconsin, because you almost went there. You were almost a little Midwest on us. You were kind of, were they out of curiosity? They might have been. All right. I thought so. Ask Eric sometime. He's, I won't say what he's got, but he's got a repertoire, all right? He's got a repertoire. Uh, open your Bibles. We are in the book of Nehemiah. And so if you go kind of halfway through your Bible and kind of move a little bit to the left, just to the left of the Psalms, you're going to find the book of Nehemiah. And I want to pick up where Eric did. Um, it's not too late to join us in a read-through of the Bible this year. We're reading a plan that starts with the book of Genesis and is going to go read whole books at a time. And you'll make your way through the whole Bible in a year if you want to join us. Email me. I'll give you the link to the, uh, the study that we're using. And it's in the Bible app, so it's real easy to use. 104 of us have begun that journey so far. We'll see how many of us can complete that, but 104 of us have begun. And if you haven't yet uh, you know, started in it, it's time to do that. You don't want to get too far behind. Today actually is a rest day, so there's a day of reflection built in, one day of the week. It happens to be on Sunday in our cycle. And so you can take today as a day of reflection if you're in the study, or you can use it as a catch-up day too. Either one of those is fine. So anyway, join us for that. Well, we are in the book of Nehemiah, and one of the things that we know about Nehemiah is he wrote this book, and in fact, the book really feels like his per personal memoirs. Um, he writes in first person for the first seven chapters, and then the book makes into a little tilt and goes into a third person at that point, but we know that we're feeling like, man, we're reading this guy's personal diary about you know, what happens to him and what he does related to uh, Israel and related to uh, Jerusalem specifically. We're going to be in this study for 11 weeks. It's going to take us all the way up to Easter. And the whole book, again, as you can kind of see in the graphic, is about rebuilding. That's, no, back one, one. It's, it's about rebuilding. And uh, there's three things that Nehemiah is going to be instrumental in rebuilding. He's going to be instrumental, and most of us who are Bible students probably know this about him. He's going to be instrumental in rebuilding the walls in the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. You probably knew that already. But that's not all he's about rebuilding. He's actually about rebuilding the people in their loyalty and covenant faithfulness to God. So that's what he's about. And in the very last chapter, he's about rebuilding individuals who have fallen away and need a bit of a rebuke and a reminder about what it means to come back to God. So rebuilding is the big theme of the book of Nehemiah, and that's what we're going to cover in all 13 chapters of his book. Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, we have a serious amount of remembering to do, kind of some biblical history in order to snap in where Nehemiah is and why this is going to matter to us, and we got to snap that in. So I'm going to use a series of maps in order to try to orient us to Nehemiah's time and place. Here's the first one. And you'll notice on the very left-hand side, all the way over here, is where uh, ancient Israel was, and is, still is today. And there's the city of Jerusalem, right next to the Dead Sea. And then you'll notice that there over to the right is what's considered uh, the Babylonian Empire. It became the Persian Empire later, but it's right now the Babylonian Empire. And that is modern-day Iraq. So just think in your minds where Iraq is. 
You've got in the middle of that uh, several other little countries uh, that, that are over there, and, and you know, that, that's all fitting together. If you go to the next slide, I want to show that uh, Nehemiah is what is known as a cupbearer. That's what he identifies himself as. And that is an ancient role. Maybe it actually still exists today because it would be very needed today. A cupbearer was the individual who tasted all the wine, all the food ahead of the king. Now, why would you do that? Well, you do that because you want to make sure the king's not getting poisoned to death. And so you have somebody that tastes your food ahead of you in order to make sure that what you're consuming is actually good and edible. And so Nehemiah is this guy that acts as a cupbearer to the king. The other thing that we know, and we'll read this together, is he also is living all the way over here to the right, to the city of uh, Susa, and he says, I'm in the citadel of Susa, and a citadel is a way to think of actually a palace, and in fact, that's exactly where he is. He's with a king named Artaxerxes, and they're in a citadel or a palace in Susa, which is the winter palace of all Persian kings. So they have a summer palace if you're a king, a winter palace if you're a king, and they happen to be in the citadel of Susa, which is the winter palace of Artaxerxes, and so that's where he's writing from. Now, we got to remember a little bit about how we got here. Why is Nehemiah, a Jew, all the way over there? Why isn't he back here in Jerusalem? If you show me the next slide, there's a reason why. In 587, God had kept on warning the Israelites you're straying from me. You're forgetting your loyalty to me. You're treating each other poorly. You're treating others poorly. And that has consequences to it. And God allows his people, his people that he loves very much, to be taken into exile. Nebuchadnezzar, who is Babylonian, the Babylonian king, arrives in Jerusalem. He overtakes the city and burns the city to the ground and takes individuals from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area and takes them captive. That's an actual relief from a museum in the Iraq area today showing, again, these Babylonian taskmasters who are taking the slaves from Israel back to Babylon. What ends up happening in Babylon is Babylonians, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar actually gets overtaken. He's overtaken by the Medes, and then they're overtaken by the Persians. So there's several regime changes, but it's under the Persians that something big happens after this 587. There's a period of time in which they're captive. A guy like Daniel writes in the city of, of, of Babylon uh, as a, an exile a leader or a, a prophet. What happens next is in the next slide, there's successive kings that allow three waves of Israelites to return to the promised land and actually rebuild their temple. And so that happens in 537, that the first wave of uh, immigrants come back to the promised land. And it's by 515 that they actually build or rebuild the temple. It's a fraction of its former self. In fact, individuals who had been around weep because it's, it's so puny in comparison to what it had been. But it is a temple, and it's going to reestablish life again in Israel so we have over here in Susa, we have this cupbearer named Nehemiah, and he is writing to us about what's going on back here in Jerusalem. And what we're going to find out is that there are some pretty major security challenges that are happening in Jerusalem. All right, that's a bit of a backdrop. Let's go ahead and pick up in the passage today, and let's find out what's going on in the book of Nehemiah 
we're going to wade into this again in, in uh, weeks to come. This is the way he begins. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in, the, in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had, served the, uh, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success and your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Lord, as we get ready to unpack this book, this ancient book, may we understand it, may we apply it with joy and fortitude to our lives May we most of all honor you. That's what we seek to do. Just like Nehemiah, our friend, did, we want your honor, your glory, and your praise. So work this book and these ancient words that are still relevant today into our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Do that for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we get ready to dive into this book... I want to remind us that nobody can know when tragedy will happen. Nobody can tell when bad news is going to be at your doorstep. It could be a phone call or a text message. The project has failed. Or it could be an urgent message that says, call back immediately. We need to talk. It could be a trooper that ends up at your front door to give you bad news about something that can only be done in person, regardless of how this news arrives, bad news is usually never a welcome thing. In fact, it can throw you into an emotional tailspin. It can stall any motivation that you have to move forward. 
It can even propel you into some irrational and, well, reactionary things that you do or decisions that you make that may not be things you'd normally do because the bad news has just overtaken you. Perhaps you can remember when you have received some especially bad news. I know that I have received some bad news at times, and one of the ones that I will never forget was a phone call that happened, well, about this time of year. It was in January when we lived back in Colorado. And a friend called me and said, Brian, I'd like for you to come immediately. I've told this story before, but just want to tell it very briefly. My friend said, uh, in, on this Saturday, I'd like for you to come because my son has taken his life with a gun, and we've just come home to find him dead. I remember feeling at that moment numb as I got ready to drive to these people's house that I knew and I loved and respected and didn't know what I would find. And a whole series of events unfolded as a result of that phone call and that bad news. I remember still vividly, Denise and I had just even begun at the church in Colorado. I was a young pastor. And we had a youth group that went away and there was a Jeep accident that killed a young lady and another lady was hospitalized. And I remember the entire church being shocked by that and gathering together in prayer and just lamenting over what had transpired. I wonder what your bad news has been. Maybe you can remember a time when you were like, man, I could take myself back to that moment where I picked up the phone and I got that news that said, I know it's late, but I have to tell you something. Or maybe you've gotten that person that's come and told you in person about something that's just been very tragic. What do we typically do when we receive bad news? One of the things that is very human, in fact, our, our, I think our disposition is made up for this, and one of the things that we tend to do is we deny it. We're like, no, that can't have happened. And you feel this sense of just like, distance from it and you feel the sense of like you know I've got to almost see it to believe it because it's so unthinkable about what's just transpired here and so you tend to be denying it and many say that's actually the first form of grief is to be in that sense of disequilibrium that sense of like no this can't be happening to me right now and again I, I might describe it as a sense of numbness the other thing that might happen very regularly is you have one of two reactions one reaction is that you basically withdraw. You pull into a shell. You almost are non-communicative. And, and you just like are just feeling like you're just pulling back. You're withdrawing. You're coming within yourself. Uh, the other opposite extreme is that some, when they're again in that moment of grief and that moment of bad news, they go into the hyperdrive and they've got to be hyperactive or hyper busy. And you've got to be doing something. There's not a right or a wrong to that, but those are two reactions that can common, commonly happen to us when we have received some bad news. Our story today is about bad news. It's about troubling news. It's about heartbreaking news. And the opening chapter today is the way that Nehemiah received the news and what he did with it. And what we're going to discover is he did some things that are really quite outstanding things that are maybe even worth emulating if we understand them. And so what did Nehemiah do? And how is he a model for us when we receive bad news? Let's take a look at this together. We're going to start off right where he does at the beginning of this. First, Nehemiah explored. That's what I want you to know about 
him receiving some bad news is he actually explored. He asked questions. Hanani was this fellow brother, uh, a fellow Jew, and he'd come back from a distant journey to Jerusalem. And so what he, Nehemiah does first is he asks questions. This is what he says. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah still has an interest in his own homeland. He understands that he is serving the Persian king right now, but he understands who the true king is, and he's never lost a desire to support and uh, promote, again, his people making their way back to Judah and Jerusalem and making their way. And so he says, how are they getting along? Can you tell me a report about these people? And he's genuinely interested in that, and he's going to be, uh, again, attentive to what is the answer to that. Nehemiah 1 verse 3 is the answer that these guys give. Here it is. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so they give this very bad report to Nehemiah saying, it's a bad situation there. And again, I think Nehemiah maybe even had an inkling that that was probably the case, but he needed to hear it from them firsthand. And so he is one who is exploring and he's asking important questions. Now again, some of us might say, what's the big deal? So the, the, the city's walls are in this little disrepair. We don't even have walls around cities today. Why would that even be anything of importance at all? Well, that would be missing something that's pretty key in the ancient world. In the ancient world, walls were the first line of protection for any city. Walls were the things that you put up, and if those were not up, then there was a real problem. People could come in and steal or kill or do all kinds of things in your city. So walls were of extreme importance, and if you didn't have your walls up, then you were going to have bad problems. It might be saying like, uh, you, you know, you have a home, but there's no front door on it. Uh, you know, that, that would be the equivalent of saying the walls in the city are in disrepair. Here's what I want you to hear. Nehemiah does not shrink back. In fact, in fact, he pushes into learning about this bad news. He wants to know it. And so he explores and he takes an interest. Here's what I want you to hear. That's not an easy life to live. The easiest life to live is one where you are in a bubble, where you take little concern for anything outside of your own living room. Now, the biggest risk you take in that is a great sense of loneliness, and I predict that is your future if that's the way you act. But the problem is that's not the way God has made us. God has made us to be individuals who have the capacity to love, the capacity to care, the capacity to give compassion to individuals around us and even around the world, and that's something that he is stoking and constantly wanting to promote within us. And that's what Nehemiah does. He, he extends interest into something beyond himself. I can still remember the day that uh, we got a call from, uh, actually, it was, a, it, it was a message. It was a WhatsApp from uh, Denise's translator in Cuba. We had known Esther and Alex over a couple of visits to Cuba wonderful people, and she was a wonderful translator. Then I always joked that Esther knew English better than we did. I mean, she was just, she was that good. And she WhatsApped us and said, would you pray for me today because I'm going out to try to find food for my family? And, you know, again, record scratch. Eee, well, one second here, what do you mean? 
Uh, you know, in Cuba, I'm just here to say, you don't pop by the grocery store to QFC and get a few things. There are no grocery stores there. There's a ration store that usually has very little or nothing. So you're usually looking on the black market. Cubans call it looking on the left. So we're going to look on the left to see if we can find something. And she said that day, pray for me, I want to go find some hot dogs. And I was like, okay, all right. I mean, that, we're, we're going to join you in prayer for that because we're with you and we want you to be able to eat today. And so all day long, we're kind of waiting and praying. And she reports back and says, I found somebody. And usually you look towards relatives or friends that you know that you trust to ask them to be able to trade. She had found some hot dogs that day. Victory, the family's eating tonight, and it was a wonderful thing. But I'm here to tell you again, Denise and I only were able to join them in that because we knew them. It was an extension, really, of our own family, and we loved them very much. That's the feeling, again, that Nehemiah has as he's interested because he's connected somehow to these people. Now, I want you to hear me. In this era of global news, in this era of social media, it is impossible for you to care for everybody everywhere. There's just too much fatigue in that. It's humanly impossible. But it's not impossible for you to care for some person somewhere. And I believe that God leads us all into those relationships. And so you will have a unique set of interests and unique set of people that God is calling you to care for at this level that I won't have or that others won't have. But together, collectively, we have quite a network of individuals that we are joining in supporting and caring for and loving together. The very first thing that Nehemiah does is he expresses concern, interest, he explores, he questions. So he is moving towards this problem, not away from it. And that's something I think that's important that God wants us all to learn. All right, the second response from Nehemiah is he mourns. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah takes this personally because these are his friends and these are Jews who are in danger. And so he says that they are in trouble and they are facing shame. Now again, we can understand why they would be in trouble Without these walls, they're vulnerable, they're easily attacked. And again, this might be the equivalent of saying, you know, we're losing the front door or we don't have locks on our door, so we're a little vulnerable here. In their case, again, the whole city is vulnerable, and so we would understand the sense of trouble. But he says this other word that's rather interesting because he says, and we were feeling a sense of shame over the city and the condition of the city. And we're like, why would that be the case? Why would you feel a sense of shame? Well, Jerusalem was formerly the centerpiece, really, of the Middle Eastern or the Near Eastern world. People came from all over the world to come to the temple that Solomon had built, and they came to flooding into the, the beauty and into the grandeur of Jerusalem and of Israel. And all that had been destroyed, and the city was in this sense of disrepair, and because of its former state of glory, in comparison, it's in a shameful state. It's in something that just makes us embarrassed to think of where it formerly was and where it is now. I wonder if we have some very similar feelings about our own city. 
I think about Seattle, and I've only been here for 20 years. Some of you have been here a lot longer than that. And Seattle used to be this spot that was just a beacon of light. And you love to go down to Seattle, and you love to go to Pike's Market, and you love to go out for a meal or take the monorail. We would always go down every Christmas. And how far our city has fallen from that glory. How far our city has fallen. And it's like you blinked an eye and like what has happened to our city. And you could even say that there is a sense of shame in that. Because wow, look at where it was and look at where it is. There's just a disconnect in that and, and, and it's too much. Here's what Nehemiah does. He feels it. He mourns over it. And I have a question for myself. I hope it's an accurate one for you. When was the last time I mourned and wept for my city or my country? When was the last time that I just wept? I went, whoa, what has just happened here? And I'm so disturbed by it that I weep and I lament and I actually care for these problems. It's the easiest to basically let that go and say it's somebody else's problem. And imagine if Nehemiah said, wow, (laughs) it's too bad over there in Jerusalem you got some problems because back here in Persia at the Citadel of Susa, we're doing just fine, thank you. And if he had just like neglected that completely, no change is going to be made. But he is the one who mourns over this, feels this, has the pain of this, And he lets it sink in before he does anything else. When you get bad news, it is entirely appropriate to mourn, to let that have its effect, to work deep into your soul, to sit in the depth of that moment and experience it. I will always have a memory of my father's death, unlike my mother's death, which was very quick. My father's death stretched over five days. My dad was on a morphine drip so that he was not feeling as much pain. He still did feel some pain, and I knew that. But I I was at his bedside for that entire five days. I will never forget that I had some people join me in my mourning, join me in my attention to dad. One lady came, and she said, Brian, I don't want to disturb you, but right outside the door, I'm going to stay for a while and just pray. Two hours She stayed and prayed for me and my father. I'll never forget that. Another woman came and said, Brian, I know you've been here for a couple days now. You need to get out. You need to go have some lunch. I will stay. I promise I'll be here. I'll text you if anything happens, but you go. And just the the person that was there to just be with me in that moment and share that with me and, and give me some freedom in the midst of that, I'll never forget that day. And oftentimes when we're thinking about bad news, it's going to bring a sense of mourning to us. And sometimes that's very individual. It's individual mourning that has to be done, individual work that has to be done. But sometimes there are others that join us in that. And in that moment, that's a very beautiful thing. I have no idea if Nehemiah was able to share that with other people. The scriptures don't say, but we do know this. He took it seriously and he mourned greatly over the condition of the city. All right, there's one more thing that happens, and perhaps it's the longest section of this passage. The third thing that he does is, and it's obvious, he prays. 
Uh, That's his third response to this bad news. And to be clear, he actually prays and fasts. Verse 4 again, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the longest section. It starts at verse 5, ends at verse 11. And this is a record of the way, again, that Nehemiah is praying before God. I would like to tell you a few things about this prayer and just have us reflect a little bit on the way he went about praying or the things that he prayed about. First of all, he says that he prayed day and night. Day and night. And so we're, we're saying, I mean, this is serious because he's getting up and during the day he's praying about this. At night he's praying about this. He's still going about all of his duties as a cupbearer, but he's doing this day and night. Now, there is something that I noticed this week, and I've studied the book of of Nehemiah before. I never preached it, actually, but I've studied it plenty of times, and I never have seen this before. This is very interesting. We are given two dates in the first two chapters, and I've got them up here for you right now. Verse 1-1, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. By itself, I'm like, okay, an ancient calendar, I don't really know much about what that means, but all right, let's roll on. Chapter 2, verse 1, which we're going to cover next week, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. All right, so we're given two months. And they're months that we don't know much about because it's an ancient calendar, but some people do. And here's what they tell you. There's a difference of four months in between those those months. It's a four-month time span. So what we're being told is, from the time that he heard about the disrepair of the walls and the time he is now praying, lamenting, mourning... There is a four-month period that transpires before he's going to do and take any action. We're going to find out what action he's going to take. That's significant because we're given a time frame in which he is actually praying day and night, much longer than I might have imagined. And so again, praying day and night, praying continually is something that Nehemiah did. I've got the quote from two people that I think helps me in understanding the depths of this. One is Abraham Lincoln. And here's what Abraham Lincoln says. I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. And here's our president that's trying to keep our entire republic together. He's got a civil war going on and he's saying... I didn't have anything else to, anywhere else to go. I, we, were, we were unable to, to master whatever was going on around us. And so I had to go to prayer. And maybe you've been in situations like that. You really don't know a way out. And so you're that desperate. And, and that's where Nehemiah is. The next one is from Mother Teresa. And I love this little quote. Prayer is the mortar that holds our house together. Isn't that a great one? Prayer is just the mortar that holds our house together. And so if you want to have a house that's going to be held together, you'll go to prayer because, again, that's just the right thing to do in order to ask God to be in the midst of what we're doing. The second thing that happens in his prayer is he confessed their sin. In fact, he says to God, we've sinned against you, we have acted corruptly, and I want you to notice something. He includes himself. He says, even me and my family are a part of that whole thing. So he doesn't push it off and say, you know, it's been those bad people over there. Those are the ones that have sinned. No, he says, we've sinned. We've been the individuals who've disobeyed you. And what he's saying here is, God, you're right in your judgment. When you took us into exile, you were exactly right because that was what we had done. We were those people. And so he confesses sin. That leads into the third thing that he does. He remembers God and his covenant. 
And so if confessing our sin is as bad as it now is, which usually that's what we're doing, we're confessing our sin, we're saying, it's this bad, God, and I want to bring that before you. If we're remembering God, his promises and his covenants, that's imagining how good it might be. So this is how bad it is, but this is how good it might be because of God and your promises. And that's where he picks up in verse 9. In fact, I've got that here on the screen for us. He says this, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And so this is what he's bringing before God and saying, God, this is your promise to us. Your promise to us was, yeah, you're going to leave me, but if you come back to me, even if you're far off, he uses heaven as an example to, you think of a spot that's farthest away, you, God, are capable of bringing your people back, restoring them, and having your name dwell there among them. And that's, Lord, what we want. That's what we're asking for, is for you to be faithful to the promises that you've given And that's a good thing, an attitude of prayer that we all should have. Go in the scriptures, find something that God's promised and say, God, this is what you promised and I'm cashing that in. I'm taking that to the bank. I want that to happen. And that's a good aspect of prayer when we're thinking about bad things that have happened. Third, he remembers, excuse me, that was third. He remembered God in his covenants. Fourth, he asks God for success. Nehemiah asks something very specific from God. He says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of, he says, this man. So he's saying, God, I want you to bless us. I want you to be in the midst of of all the decisions that we're making. I want you to give us success. And that's not a bad thing to pray to God and say, God, I want your hand upon what we're doing here and I want you to guide us and lead us. But he says this very interesting thing because he says, I want your success with this man. And so it's like, who is this man? We don't have context for that right now. Who is this man that he's talking about? And we're going to find out in chapter 2, this man is the king, Artaxerxes. And he's saying, God, I'm getting ready to go to Artaxerxes and ask him something that's really important and potentially a little bit dangerous. And I'm asking you to give blessing, give success to my approach to that king. So he's taking a minute right now to prepare his own heart for that four months. And he's taking that four-month period to also prepare the heart of the king for what he's going to ask him in chapter 2. Getting bad news is just a part of life. It's going to happen to all of us. And it's going to happen maybe once or many times in our lives. A tragedy is going to happen. A death is going to occur. An accident will befall us. A medical test result is going to come back. And it's in moments like that that Nehemiah offers a roadmap for what to do when we receive bad news. He's going to explore, he's going to mourn, he's going to pray. Let me close with this story today. I had a good friend, and we were fly fishing together, and he received a phone call. I I was actually surprised that he was within cell coverage, but he picked up the phone, and uh, he began to talk, and it was quite a long phone call conversation, and he got done with that, and I said, hey, is everything okay? And he said, no, it's really not. He said, I just discovered that I lost everything financially. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I had a stockbroker that made some trades that I didn't quite know he was making, but he made them, and they all blew up. And he said, it it appears that I've, I've lost kind of all my retirement money. 
And I said, man, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. And you might imagine that kind of uh, ended the fly fishing trip, shall we say. You didn't feel much like fly fishing in the midst of that kind of troubling news. I watched my friend mourn. I watched my friend get a little bit angry, both with the broker as well as with himself. I watched my friend think about the consequence to his wife and to his kids. I watched my friend just pour himself out before God. And over the course of time, he kept on coming back to God and he kept on praying. And over the course of many years, I actually watched a friend get rehabilitated. I watched him spiritually get stronger. I even watched him financially get stronger. But that day was a pivotal moment for all of his life and news that he never thought he would hear. Bad news usually does not end our lives. It just opens the door for something else. A new trust, a new reliance upon God, and obviously a great opportunity. How will you respond when bad news comes? Nehemiah is a model for that time. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to the first chapter of this incredible book. You Lead us. You lean into that with us and guide us. And we will praise you for it. And all God's people said, Amen.